from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the CER podcast. My name is Sophia Besch. I'm a research fellow here at the Center for European Reform. And today I'm in conversation with Constanze Stelzmüller and Camille Grand. Constanze is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in DC and Camille is Assistant Secretary General for Defense Investment at NATO. And we're here to discuss NATO and the debate on European and US defense. We are at the Daimler US European Forum. This is another podcast on the go. And we've just had a fascinating two-hour debate on this issue, which we were not allowed to record. But Constance and Camille have graciously agreed to repeat some of these points on our podcast now. So this debate about burden-sharing, defense spending, interoperability and cooperation between NATO and the EU and between the United States and European NATO members has been going on for decades. But what I want to talk about is what is new, what is different today. And I would argue that there are quite a few things that are different. If we look at Madeleine Albright's three Ds, the three no-goes of NATO-Europe cooperation, no duplication, no discrimination, and then no decoupling, they mean different things today than they meant uh, when she first iterated them. The no duplication, today we have EU efforts on defense that might well duplicate some of what NATO is doing when it comes to capability planning. No discrimination. Well, there's a risk of discrimination now against the newest NATO non-EU member state, the United Kingdom. And then no decoupling, I would argue that under the leadership of President Trump, but arguably even under President Obama, we've seen less of an alignment between the US and its European allies when it comes to strategic priorities. And I want to start with that, Camille. How big is the divide between the US and its NATO allies today? Well, I'm not sure there is a divide. The interesting thing is that we have indeed a, a bit of stress on the transatlantic defense relationship, primarily revolving around burden sharing. President Trump has been even more explicit than his predecessors in asking for the Europeans to put money into defense and to sort of step up their game in order to meet uh, not only a, a U.S. call for spending more and a fair burden sharing, but also to sort of take their part in um, the overall deterrence and, and defense posture of the, the alliance. So that's one element of, of this particular conversation. Uh, the second one is obviously uh, the fact that there are a number of questions raised by the Europeans on, on the U.S. commitment. On that front, I think we are on a relatively safe ground when we look at what has the Trump administration delivered in terms of U.S. forward presence in Europe, in terms of commitment to European security. But obviously, I mean, politics will continue to play a role in the run-up to the NATO summit. On the burden-sharing front, I think the issue here is to see whether the glass is half full or half empty. In a way, compared to where we were when the defense investment pledge was uh, taken at the Wales Summit in 2014, there has been a very significant effort. We are in the fourth year in a row of defense spending increase in Europe. Uh, Europe was last year the country where the amount of money spent on defense increased the most, which is uh, unprecedented in the post-Cold War era. Every single European ally has made a significant effort, except for one or two. So that is a game changer. The issue is, are we at 2% uh, yet? Short answer is obviously no. Are we heading there? The answer is probably yes for many allies, not for all of them. So where will we be in 2024? Somewhere in a sort of mixed bag situation. But what I would stress is that altogether, the trends are moving in very much in the right direction with a significant increase. And ultimately, the Europeans did step up their game uh, when it comes to defense spending and, and uh, taking defense more seriously. 
Is it sufficient as we speak? The short answer is obviously not yet. But I think we have a pretty good story to share at the NATO summit, even though that, you know, we're only halfway through this uh, effort or maybe only a third of the way. Consensus following up from that uh, on the element of burden sharing. There is, of course, as Camille said, a more positive picture now than there used to be, but we also know that not all allies are created equal and some of the bigger economies are more in the limelight when it comes to delivering on defense spending. So I want to ask you to perhaps comment on particularly Germany's road ahead there. And if you want to also say a couple of words on the strategic priorities uh, the US and its European allies are coming apart. Thank you very much, um, and thanks for having me back on the podcast. I would actually like to make a few comments about the American side of this, and I'm perfectly happy to wade in on the German side too. On the American side, I think we need to go a little deeper. Today's discussion showed that there are really sort of quite important differences of opinion within Washington and between Washington institutions on the commitment to NATO to European allies and their relative importance as opposed to other strategic challenges and, and there in particular uh, the rise of China. N a number of points were raised that I think are, are worth noting. One is that while Congress has just passed a stupendously large defense budget, uh, as, as the Americans would say, humongous, that gives the Department of Defense planning certainty for about the next two years and it is not quite clear what the trajectory of American defense spending will be afterwards. So while it is accurate to say that this Department of Defense has reinforced American forward presence in Europe in ways that are very beneficial for defense and deterrence vis-a-vis -vis Russia, it's not entirely clear what the funding of that is going to be in the medium term and the long term. The second point is that there is clearly disagreement, or rather there is a doubt as to whether the very clear focus on China as a strategic competitor might not turn into a zero-sum game of resource distribution within the American context with regard to Europe, again in the medium term. That was also made clear, and I think that that is something that ought to concern us. And finally, and I think most importantly, there is the political disagreement between hardliners in the American system and the more mainstream about the importance of Europe and the importance of the alliance and the importance of values and strategic preferences as a basis for that alliance or pure transactionalism. That is something that remains a big question mark and that I can well imagine playing out at the July NATO summit in one way or another, where you would see a division between this Department of Defense and the White House, or more specifically, the Secretary of Defense and the President. So much for the United States. But that, that I think, inserts an element of insecurity in the alliance, as seen from Europe, that has not been there in quite this way in the past. Now, on to Germany. Germany and its strategic preferences, Germany and its defense payments. I tend to agree with Camille, despite the fact that I'm German and he's French, that we ought to be paying the 2% and that this is not that difficult. I feel that was a joke. Um, <laughs> the, the <laughs> Thank you for laughing now. I saw a little bit of doubt on your faces. I feel that Germany has woefully underinvested and underfunded its own defense efforts. There are a variety of domestic reasons. There are path dependencies that we've gotten ourselves into. But the truth is, this is a matter for political leadership. It can be done and it ought to be done one, one commentator in our discussion just now was quite right to say that if we 
for example, focused on investing in strategic enablers, we would have no problem spending large amounts of money. Nobody is suggesting that Germany ought to invest in a large, easily mobilizable armed force. That is, in fact, not at all what we're looking at. We're looking at key capabilities, and those are lacking as well. That, I think, is an argument that is easily disposed of. The more difficult debate is what are our strategic preferences? And there, it seems to me fairly obvious, and it became obvious in today's discussion as well, that there are strategic disagreements between Germany and France, and disagreements that are important because they could undercut the way we work together and our ability to then build consensus and cohesion between us and smaller NATO and EU members. And those disagreements show up on a variety of levels. For one, there is France's emphasis on strategic autonomy, which is somewhat ambiguous, it seems to me. It is not clear whether there is complete agreement between different elements of the French state on the meaning of this phrase. You could interpret it as a French insistence that France must be able to operate alone as a nuclear power and a member of the P5 and the Security Council, must be able to operate strategically beyond the framework of the EU and NATO, which I think is something that is one would just have to take as a statement of fact. But if it is also a statement that relates to France's role in Europe or France's preferences for Europe's relationship with NATO, then we have a larger problem, because there France and Germany disagree. And particularly if that then turns into a debate about whether in the context of EU defense cooperation, we should move in the direction of moving ahead with a smaller group of, of countries, or whether, and this is the German preference, we should emphasize keeping as many countries in the consensus as possible of the EU, and preferably all the 26 or, or soon to be 25 without the Brits. And finally, I think we have an undisclosed, undiscussed disagreement about what role the Brits should play in this context. Germans, of course, have always felt that the Brits were a necessary counterweight to France in preferences, um, not just about trade, but also about security. And the very sharp question that came out in, up in our discussion just now about Galileo and, and about the EU Commission telling the Brits that they will no longer have access to Galileo, the European Union's global positioning system, exposed just how sharp these debates could become and just how great the ill will on both sides could become if this becomes a toxic discussion, which in my view it ought not to be. Thank you, great. I'm not sure how representative your view on German defense spending is of Germany, but you're certainly our favorite German to ask about it, so we'll just stick with that. So you've raised a couple of the questions that I would like Camille to, to perhaps respond to. Camille, Constance mentioned the United Kingdom, and as we are in the FCO today, let's talk about this new spoiler and uh, the UK relationship between Britain and its European partners will likely be strained for some time to come. What do you think will be the effect of that on European defense cooperation? The UK has, has been uh, since uh, Saint-Malo, so now for 20 years, a very important part of the uh, defense uh, conversation within the EU. So the Brexit creates a, a problem in the sense that not only the EU is losing one of the most capable military powers in Europe on every ground. Um, it's 25% uh, of defense spending, a lot of the intervention capabilities, and also a, a significant uh, share of the research on defense and security in Europe that is disappearing from EU's books. So the issue is how do we restore that? Prime Minister May was very clear 
in a Munich Security Conference speech that uh, she, her intention was to have the UK very much part of that conversation in the future and that the UK was not withdrawing from Europe. I think that message has been well taken by the defense and security communities, but the problem is that it strikes the broader debate about Brexit and the sort of legal issues that revolve uh, around Brexit. So, and Galileo being a casing point here, uh, where the Commission takes a pretty simple view of saying, since we don't know where you're going to be in, in the future, because the Brexit negotiations have not concluded, uh, we have to as assume that you will no longer be part of the European Union and there will no, not be an agreement that makes you part of that particular project and, and does that. And therefore, we are no longer contracting with US, UK companies, which in return sort of backfires in a, in a British government being extremely upset with that particular position and, and threatening to withdraw from the program altogether. This is a very unfortunate story, and I think it shows probably on both sides a lack of sort of political approach to these uh, matters. My personal assessment is that the issue will be resolved in the future because it, it makes no sense for Britain to be outside such a major program. But the problem is, uh, will it be resolved after having gone through a major crisis, a very toxic debate, and uh, therefore with a damaging approach to all of this. So I think there, that's the, the situation we're in. What I would, however, note as a defense expert uh, is that I think the defense communities everywhere in Europe see the point for making every effort to keep Britain in the loop. And there, there is no schadenfreude on the part of any uh, defense leader in Europe to, to uh, lose Britain as part of that particular conversation. On the other hand, where the Brexit negotiators have a point is that there are, we must recognize, multiple communities that would argue that, oh, as far as we are concerned, we the bankers, we the uh, border control uh, managers, we uh, the space policy individuals also want our exception and we can't lose British universities, uh, British, British research or whatever as part of the broader EU conversation. And, and those communities have also a point to say, well, we should uh, make an exception for us. And this is where the Commission starts saying, whoa, 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 there are 10 communities that are asking for an exception for them. We need to stick to a, an a overarching policy of managing Brexit as, as a package, which, uh, of course, is, is a bit uh, difficult to accept from a British perspective, where uh, there is a tendency to sort of look at themes that are good for uh, maintaining cooperation and focusing on those uh, as a political narrative. Let me just use this moment to quickly plug my CER paper on Galileo. You can access that on our website once you listen to this podcast. But I think we can stop here. Mm -hmm. Thank you both for coming on and uh, talking us through the debate. Thanks for listening to the CER podcast and thanks to Beth Oppenheim, our editor. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and follow us on Twitter, CER underscore EU.